Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Morning, family. What a pleasure to be here this morning. A delight to be in the house of the Lord. I encourage you to take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the New Testament book of James. We're beginning a new series this morning, the book of James. You'll notice immediately when we look there at James chapter 1 and verse 1 that it was written by James. Hence the name. I know it seems kind of obvious, but I, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've talked with folks and they've really thought that the names of the, the books, you know, they're just kind of random things. People look for the kind of the weirdest thing they could find, you know, Lamentations, let's name a book that. What about Deuteronomy? Ooh, that'd be a cool, weird name. Uh, the, the titles of the books tell us something, and uh, most often they tell us who wrote it or who it's written to. And in this case, it's written by James. The question is, James who? What James? And when you go through and you look at Scripture, both tradition and Scripture kind of make it pretty obvious that the James who is writing here is James, the half-brother of Jesus. You know, Jesus had siblings, but they were all half-siblings because his father was God. He was born of the Virgin Mary, but then Mary and Joseph... Jesus' adopted father, they went on to have other children. These children, including James, were not believers of Jesus Christ. Jesus' brothers, you recall, we meet them in the gospel. They were, they were thinking, Jesus is, must be nuts. And then came the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus appeared to James, the scripture tells us, and James became an ardent believer and follower of Jesus and he became, as we discover as well in Scripture, he became a key leader, probably the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This letter was written around 44 to 49, A.D. 44 to 49, some 10 to 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, making it very likely the earliest of the New Testament books. And as James writes this book, he calls us to live a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he does so, he addresses some very practical and very challenging issues of life and how a real follower of Christ, how a genuine person of faith in Christ lives in relation to those issues. And so we've titled our series, Real Faith Meets Real World. Years ago, the story was told of a missionary who went to, he was assigned to some remote islands in the Pacific Ocean. After three months, he sent a message to the head, mission headquarters saying, I am just being plagued, inundated here with rats. What shall I do? And a couple of months later, a crate arrives to the island from mission headquarters, and it's loaded with rat traps. 
And so he starts putting out the traps, and very shortly later he sends another message back to mission headquarters. He says, the rat traps aren't working. The rats aren't taking the bait. They're not catching the, you know, it's not dealing with the problem at all. What shall I do? And another month or so later, another crate arrives on the island. This one from mission headquarters, it is loaded with rat poison. So a few weeks later, the missionary sends another message to mission headquarters, and he says, the rat poison isn't working either. What shall I do? And mission headquarters sends a message back to the missionary and said, we suggest you get used to the rats. (laughs) See, life is rather like that. Whether we are rich or whether we're poor, whether we are famous or unknown, whether we are influential or not, whether we are young or whether we're old, whether we are American or Albanian or Argentinian or Afghanistani or Australian, that was all the ones I could think of that started with A, no matter who we are, No matter how hard we strive to eliminate or to mitigate or to minimize our problems and difficulties and suffering in this life, there are always more rats. (laughs) There's always some difficulty and suffering that comes into our life. It is a very real world problem. What are we to do with the trials and sufferings of life as followers of Jesus Christ. James, as he begins this little letter, he he only gets to the second verse before he starts dealing with these real-world problems that we face. And the first of these that he deals with is this problem of trials and suffering. And that's the subject of our text this morning. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James' audience, as he writes this letter, the people that he is writing to are Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, hence that term, the the twelve tribes. Pastor James, you remember, is the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. And most likely these folks to whom he's writing were folks who were once part of his congregation there in Jerusalem. Jews who were believers in Jesus Christ. The trials that he's going to mention in just a moment are not really specifically named for us. But he's writing to folks who he says are in the dispersion In other words, they are scattered to other places. And most assuredly, what he is referring to, this dispersion, is the result of persecution against those early believers in Jesus that were there in Jerusalem. We know from Scripture and we know from history that these believers in Jerusalem endured periods of prejudice, periods of loss of property and violence. And many fled for their lives from Jerusalem. And so James' readers here are very likely the victims of these injustices. 
People who endured that in Jerusalem now as they have been dispersed and fled to other places, other lands, they are enduring even more difficulties as they seek to scrape out a life living as refugees. We know in our own day there are millions of refugees fleeing different countries, going to other places, and it is extremely difficult for refugees to live in other places. It was no easier in this day. And so we can only imagine the trials that these folks faced, the suffering that they endured. So how does the Christian faith, how are believers in Jesus supposed to respond to suffering and to trials? James, again, just jumps right into this subject by issuing a rather confounding, a rather perplexing, and a very difficult and challenging command. Verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Again, James' audience is undergoing some severe trials that most of us simply cannot identify with and likely not even imagine. Most of us, I dare say all of us in this room, probably most or if not all who are watching online, we are strangers to persecution. We are strangers to poverty. It is reality for millions of our brothers and sisters around the world today. They are severely, many of them severely persecuted for their faith in Christ. Many of them living in abject poverty because of such things. It is something that ought to concern us as believers. We ought to be praying for those folks, doing what we can to uphold them. But for most of us, we are strangers to these things. But what James writes for these suffering believers here in the first century, while it is written to them, it is applicable as well to the suffering millions of our brothers and sisters around the world today. It is also, by God's grace and by God's wisdom and in His plan, it was designed for us. This Word of God has something to us as well. Because while you and I today cannot identify with persecution as these folks endured, and while most of us, I dare say, have never lived in abject poverty as many of these folks did and many of our brothers do, the reality is we all still experience something of suffering and trials. Matter of fact, because I know most of you, I know that many of us endure difficult days right now. If we're not now, we will endure such days. Physical sufferings like illness, disease, disability, debilitating pain. Many of us in this church family have been through financial difficulties not poverty, but very difficult financial times. Many of us today are experiencing or have experienced relational difficulties and pain, 
problems with a spouse or problems with children or problems with parents or problems with friends. Many folks in our family have endured the loss of a loved one or the loss of a spouse. Some of you endure loneliness. We are not immune from violence. We are not immune from crime or injustice. And some of you have suffered such things. Sometimes suffering arrives in the form of a fire or a frozen water pipe or a backed up sewer or an auto accident. And we could go on and on because it seems like there is a limitless supply of the types and the variety of trials that we can face. But there is one thing that they all have in common. Whether they are any of those trials that we face or any of the trials that our brothers and sisters face around the world in persecution and poverty or that these believers face, there's one thing they all have in common. None of the sufferings, none of the trials, none of the problems are pleasant. They hurt. They're difficult. We struggle. We suffer. And that's what makes James' command here so very strange because he begins with a commandment. We just read it. And the commandment is, count it all joy. And we think, James, are you nuts? You seriously want me to count fill in the blank with your latest or current suffering, you want me to count this as joy? This is insanity. Or is it? It's strange. Sounds like an oxymoron. Let me note three things in that little command. The first thing I note is that he says, count it all joy. It is a choice. I think if you have the New International, it says, consider it joy. He doesn't say that trials are fun, that trials are joyful, that trials are pleasant, but rather we are to consider them as such. We are to count them as such. The word in the Greek, hegemai, is a word that means it's a rational process. It is an engaging of the mind. It is to consider, to think, to gather your thoughts and to consider the reality, the truth that is bigger than my experience. And then to govern our thoughts accordingly. Instead of being ruled by our feelings, we are to be ruled by our thinking. And we are to change our thinking so that rather than just looking at the trial and, and feeling, oh, this is awful, this, this is bad, or being depressed, that I think, okay, I'm going to count this trial as a good thing. I'm going to count this suffering as a good thing. I'm going to count this Negative experience as a good thing. Second thing I note, not only is it a choice I make, 
that he doesn't say do this after the fact when we look back on it. He says do it during the trial. He says consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. That word meet, it's in the present tense. So we're to do it in the middle of the trial, not after it's over. We're to do it right now rather than later. You know, many times we can look back on something and go, oh, that wasn't so bad. Oh, look what good came out of this. But while we're in the middle of it, it, we can't see that. We're not supposed to just wait till it's over. We're supposed to right now say, okay, God, I'm going to count this, consider this a good thing. I'm going to take joy in this. One more thing I notice in this command is that he doesn't anywhere here say, okay, since God says, consider this a good thing, I'm going to be count this as joyful, then, well, if it's a good thing, then I'm going to go start finding more trouble. I'm going to go find more suffering. I'm going to just start bringing some on myself because it's a good thing. He doesn't say, go looking for trials. We don't have to do that. Plenty of them will come our way. Don't go looking for trouble and trials. He says here, when that word meet means to fall into, and it's the word that's used in the Bible to describe falling into the hands of robbers or criminals. We don't go look to become the victim of crime. It finds us. That's the point. So, count it joy when you fall into trials, when you meet suffering. That is so easy to say. And I have to say, very honestly, brothers and sisters, I am the least qualified person in the world to stand before you and now try to tell you how to do this. You see, I have never been persecuted like these believers were or the millions of our brothers and sisters around the world. I've never been persecuted like that. Any persecution I've endured, those folks would say it was just a blip on the road. It was nothing. I have never lived in poverty. I've never obviously lacked a meal to eat. I have not endured disease and suffering like so many of you have. I have not endured the pain, the debilitating pain that some of you have. I have not endured so many things that so many of you have suffered with. So I don't stand here to lecture on how I survived great trials with great joy. I come here on the authority of the Word of God through the messenger of God who was one who endured great trial and difficulty and who's pointing us to some ways in the rest of this passage, some keys that will help us to face whatever trials we face, and we will all face some trials, but to face them with joy rather than despair. It's easy to say to do this, but how? Let's look at the rest of the passage. We find some answers. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A key to facing trials with joy is understanding that there is purpose 
in our trials. God has a purpose in our trials, in our sufferings. They're not random. I was pretty young about a thousand years ago. <laughs> it seems that way. It wasn't that long. But year, when I was young, there was a show on TV that only you old people will remember. It was called Hee Haw. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hee Haw was this series of fast comedic sketches in a little hour show. And uh, it was all centered around hillbillies and country people. And one of the weekly sketches that would show up every week was an old barber. And he would have one of the, usually one of the guest stars of the show would be sitting in his barber chair. And he would be sitting there pretending to cut their hair. And he would say, oh, you know what, this week? This week, or, or no, he says, I was, I was, last month I was in a car accident, got hit by a car. And the guy sitting in the chair would go, ooh, that's bad. And he would go, no, really, that's good. Because I got a settlement of $100 million. The guy in the chair would go, oh, that's good. And he'd go, no, that's bad. All the in-laws moved into my house. <laughs> oh, that's bad. No, it's good. Because <laughs> you know? the, the IRS came and took the house. <laughs> And all my family, all my in-laws. <laughs> that's good. You know, and he'd go on. That's good. That's bad. That's good. And you, what you, it's funny and they were stupid things, but what you realized is that our perception of what's good and bad in our experience depends upon context. It, it depends upon our understanding of the event. See, the difference between a blessing or a curse is very often our perspective, our understanding of what is going on. Our trials, our suffering appear to be a curse, but the key is to understand that God has a purpose. The key here is knowledge. God has a purpose. Our loving Heavenly Father will not let any suffering or trial or difficulty come into our life except what has a purpose. God is sovereign and he allows these things for our good. He doesn't tell us to just be joyful in the trials themselves. You know, oh, I have cancer. Yay! I love cancer. I lost my job. Oh, yay! I love losing my job. <laughs> you know? People came and stole everything we have. Yay! He doesn't say rejoice that the trials are fun. He says we are to consider it joy. See, because God has a purpose. What the trials are producing, as the verse goes on to say, there's a purpose in these trials. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials have a purpose, and the purpose is to produce steadfastness. Another translation of that word, steadfastness, is perseverance. It's the ability to hang in there, the ability to be stronger, tougher. When I was driving into church this morning, I passed runners all the way from, from my house to church. And there were runners that were out in front, and they were just chugging along. And then there were runners a little farther, and there's runners struggling along. And I got farther, I got almost to church, and there were people just walking along. 
You know, the difference between the folks that were running to the front of the pack and the ones that were walking to the back is suffering and pain and difficulty. Because the ones who are running to the front, you see, endure a lot of self-imposed suffering and pain, conditioning their body. It's what makes it strong as they run and exercise. And the ones who are at the back of the pack, well, it was pretty obvious as I watched them that they hadn't been exercising and running a lot. Let me just say that. So it is with trials and suffering and difficulties. They, are, they produce steadfastness and perseverance. And he says that steadfastness, that perseverance, it produces in us maturity and completeness. God is working through the trials and the difficulties and the struggles in our life to grow us into maturity and to be complete, he says, so that we lack nothing. That's what it means, by the way, when it says perfect. It, when it says that you may be perfect, it doesn't mean that we ha- are without sin. None of us will be there till we get to heaven. But that word perfect there is to be mature. That God is using these things to grow us. That's the point of Romans 8, 28, where it says, And we know that God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Really, that, that verb there is more specific. Things don't just happen. It's, it's literally God causes everything to work together for the good. There's an important thing, by the way, there, because of this morning, if you're here and you're going through trials and difficulties, and you're, we're talking about being joyful in trial and difficulties, understand this. For you to be able to do that, for this verse to be true, that God causes these things for good, you need to understand that he says there's a caveat, there's a condition, is for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. This, is, this promise, this, this truth is for those who are in relation with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that every one of us was born into sin. The relationship we had with God was cut off. We've been alienated from God. But God in his mercy and grace provided a way of reconciliation, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. A way to be reconciled, restored in relationship with God. That's what Jesus came to do. God became man. Jesus became one of us that he might die for us to pay the penalty of our sins. So the Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We will not face condemnation for our sin. We will also have a new life now. We also have, the Bible says, we become children of God. We are in relationship with God. Truth is, for every believer in Jesus Christ, every single trial, every difficulty comes through the hand of God. He allows it for our good. The Bible does not make that promise for those who are not in relation to him. If you're here this morning and never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you to begin there. Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, had a problem We don't know exactly what it was. He called it a thorn in his flesh. It was some type of physical ailment that was very painful and difficult to him. Three times, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he prayed and asked that God would remove it, but God refused to do that. And God said instead, he said to to Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. It's when we are weak, 
when we are dealing with trials and things that are tough and difficult and seem to overwhelm us, it is in that time that the strength of God is perfected in us, that he matures us and grows us up. And so Paul, understanding this, he goes on and he says that he glories in his weakness through which his dependence on God grows and he is strengthened by God. A.W. Tozer, a great preacher and author of the last century, the 20th century, he wrote years ago this statement, and I think it rings true as a good one to remember. He said, seldom does God use a person greatly who has not been hurt deeply. When you go through and you read in the pages of Scripture, every time you see people that were used greatly by God, you tend to note they have been people who went through extreme pain and difficult suffering in their life. So it is when you look through the annals of Christian history, we see that played out as well. Most of the great teachers and preachers and leaders and missionaries, the great servants of God are people who have been hurt deeply. Johnny Erickson Tata was 17 years old when she became a paraplegic through a tragic swimming accident. She wrote this little note to God in a book, uh, The God I Love. She says, God, I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't love and trust you were it not for this wheelchair. See, she believes that the wheelchair that she very often wishes she didn't have, didn't need, that it has given her, as she says, a front row seat to the love and the greatness of God. So I have heard from so many of you who have suffered greatly. I hear that it is often it is through that very suffering has come a great view of the awesomeness of God. That is, as I have been told, there is no other way to see. Again, it's easy to say, rejoice in the good that will come from a trial. It's easy to say, but in the midst of a trial, that can be very difficult to do. I've sat and cried with a number of you in such trials, understanding it hurts, it's hard. What do we do? He goes on. Verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What he says is, get it. It's hard to rejoice in trials even when we know that God is working through them. But there's another key, and that is that God provides. God gives wisdom. God does not expect us to do this alone. You know, when we, if you look back in the Old Testament, the 23rd Psalm, one of the Psalms that most people, if you memorize any Psalm, that's the one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. You get on down, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will not fear 
because you're with me. You're with me. God does not expect us to do this alone. And he says, if we lack wisdom, ask God. If I don't know how to count this trial as joy, ask God. God, what do I do? If I don't know how I can persevere and hang in there in the midst of this suffering, what do I do? Go to God and ask. What do I do? If I don't know how to succeed in this suffering, in this difficulty, what do I do? Ask God. First thing I note of that is, he says here, if we ask, if, ask. We need to ask. James, later in this book, we'll see uh, a couple of months when we get to the end, he says, when we pray, he says, a lot of you do not have because you do not ask. You don't pray. <laughs> oh. But how easily we forget to simply go and ask God. And when you do ask, he says, you ask for the wrong thing with the wrong motive. Another thing I notice here, he says, God gives generously without finding fault. He won't think you weak. He won't think you silly when you ask. He wants to provide. However, he says, verse 6, he says, ask believing. Ask in faith with no doubt. That verse used to really bother me. I would read this, and I'm thinking, okay. Trials come, and I'm supposed to rejoice in my trials. And If I lack wisdom, if I don't know what to do and how to do it, then I should go to God, and I say, God, what should I do? And God's going to be listening. He says, oh, wow, Spa, you got a lot of doubt there. No, nothing for you. Sorry. Because that's what it read like to me. I'm like, you know, of course I have doubts. I always have doubts. I'm such a foolish guy. Anybody else struggle with doubts out there? Great, there's no help for me. Let him ask without doubts. Great. It used to really bother me. Then I realize that's not what he's saying. God is, he says, just before that he says he, he gives generously without finding fault. He's not sitting there saying, oh man, I'm waiting for you to cross every T and dot every I. And if you fill out form 479B and you don't have any doubts, I'll answer you. He says he does it without finding fault. He recognizes that I'm a stupid, foolish man. So what does he mean? He says act with, that we need to pray without doubting. It's the point is simply this. If a person does not believe, they by definition don't trust what God says. And rather than trust God, they will cling to their own construct, to their own ideas, to their own viewpoints, to their own solutions, and they will simply want to keep going their own way. And they'll want to mingle whatever they can of God's wisdom with whatever their ideas are. And you see what it comes down to is this. It's a person who says, God, I'm in a really, really big mess here. A really big trouble and I'm struggling. And I want your help. Would you please solve this problem my way? 
Would you please make so-and-so change? Would you please provide me this thing that I really think I need? Would you make the pain go away? Would you do all these things? Now, it's not that we never ask for God to take the pain away or provide something, but the point is that I'm not really willing to do what God wants or be what God wants or experience what God wants. I'm just trying to talk God into what I want. And if God doesn't do what I want, I really don't want anything to do with God. That's the person who doubts. I'm waiting for God to do things my way, and if not, well, you know, I'm just still going to go my way. (laughs) That's the person who doubts. It's it's doubting with an uh, with an, without submission, without humility. I love that guy that came to Jesus, and Jesus said, "I'll do this if you believe." And the guy said, "Yes, I believe." And the next words out of his mouth, "Help my unbelief." <laughs> That's the attitude here. Is God? I don't know what to do. But I don't want to go my way. I want to go your way. And I need help in doing that because I'm just weak. I know you tell me to, to rejoice and to count it joy in this situation. But I'm, I can't do that. That's how helpless I am, God. Help me to figure out how to do that. When we come with that idea, with that submission and that willingness to listen, God shows up. And he generously gives. It's like an old cartoon I remember seeing years ago of a guy hanging. He, he fell off a cliff and is hanging there on a branch that's sticking out from the cliff. And in desperation, he cries out, help! God, are you up there? Help! And God speaks. Voice down from heaven, let go of the branch. What? Let go of the branch, God says. Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) That's the definition, you see, of what we shouldn't be. It's not that God won't give the wisdom. It's that the person who needs it won't receive it because they won't trust him. We can't cling both to our pride and our plans and our ideas and also trust God. They're mutually exclusive. We have to let go of our plans and our ideas and listen to God. The next two points will happen very quickly. Trust me. <laughs> Can we trust you, Pastor? I know we're supposed to trust God. Can we trust you? Trust me. It's, it really is. They're, they'll go quick. <laughs> let, the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He turns to two people who are in the midst of difficulties, a lowly brother who's suffering a lot and a guy who's rich and not suffering very much. And he he looks at these two and he says, okay, what you need, in any case, whatever, wherever you are, is we need perspective. The perspective is that life is short. The brother in humble circumstances, the guy who is out of resources and suffering greatly, God says here, boast in your exaltation, your high position, James writes. 
You see, God, as you look through Scripture, God has an affection for the poor. God has great concern for the needy and the weak. God watches over the afflicted. And if you're afflicted and if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is there there are good things coming. Yes, suffering is real. Life is tough. But God is watching out for you and there is glory coming. Peter writes this, after you have suffered for a little while, and a little while means maybe you're suffering your whole life. I have known people who have suffered literally their entire life with physical debilitation. It says after you have suffered for a little while, even if you suffer your whole life, the point is it's a little while compared to what's coming. Notice what he goes on to say. Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. See, this life is short at very best. And for those who have suffered even all of their entire life, the scripture says, we get to the end of the book in Revelation, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering forever. There will be enjoyment of the glories and the wonders of the presence of God and the glories of heaven. Brother, in humble circumstances, boast in your humiliation. Be glad, rejoice in it, because it's short and glory is coming. In the meantime, if you are one of those who are living in luxury and living in ease and your suffering is minimal, he says, let the rich man glory Let him boast in his humiliation, in his low position. In other words, let him recognize that this life will soon end. And all the wealth and all the ease of this life is going to be quickly gone. Be humble. Recognize that whatever position, whatever you have is a gift, not an accomplishment. I don't care how hard you worked, whatever you have is still a gift from God. It is a blessing, not a right. And your focus in this life needs to be laying up in treasures in heaven which do not corrupt. Moth does not corrupt. Thieves do not break in and steal. They last forever rather than clinging to earthly treasures as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Glory in your low position if you're rich. Glory in your high position if you are poor and suffering. It's all about perspective. Life is short. Then comes eternity. That needs to be all of our perspective, no matter what our circumstances. That's the third key to rejoicing in trials. The last one, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a promise. A promise to all who hang in there in trial. All who in suffering continue to look to Jesus, to follow Jesus. Whatever our life circumstances, rich, poor, pain, or in times of pleasure and ease, our eyes are on following Jesus, honoring him in our life. To the one who is steadfast, it says there is reward 
eternal reward. You know, quite frankly, keeping our eyes on Jesus and following him, I think is far harder for us who live in wealth and in ease than for those who live in suffering and difficulty. I have been with believers in Jesus Christ in Haiti, in Guatemala, in Mexico, in the Philippines, in the southern Philippines. People enduring great suffering and who exude great joy. And I live in Lake St. Louis where there are an awful lot of very miserable people who live in wealth. And they are miserable because they've got their eyes on the wrong thing. And my brothers and sisters who live with great joy in difficult things have great joy because they've got their eyes on Jesus. This is a convicting but a powerful message that wasn't just for people back then. It isn't just for believers in the southern Philippines or in Afghanistan or some far-off place. It's for us today here. It's a message I think we all need desperately. Let's pray. Father, we come here today, very differing circumstances. Some of the folks here today are in the midst of deep trials and suffering. Some of them have just emerged from great trial. Some of them are just a step away from great trial. They just don't know it yet. And some of us are in a time of peace and prosperity and ease. We thank you that whatever our circumstances are, you are the good and awesome and sovereign God. You are in control and you're working everything for our good. So, Father, may we live faithfully and follow you wholeheartedly, whatever our circumstances. May we keep our eyes on Jesus. Father, we ask that this morning you will comfort the sorrowful, that you'll relieve the hurting, that you'll strengthen the weak, that you'll encourage the disheartened. We ask, Father, that you will convict the, the wayward, that you will prod the apathetic, that you will meet us whatever our need this day and help us to live rightly and to live well as your children in a very broken and difficult world. Father, whatever our sufferings, great or small, will you use them for your glory? And as you promised, will you use them for our good? And may we, in turn, use whatever blessings we've received, whatever resources that we have been given, whatever strengths that we have, may we use them to serve you and to bless others. And we might point them to Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.